3: People say, what are you afraid of,
1: right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels.
3: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: On this episode of Newt's author, screenwriter, philanthropist, journalist, and broadcaster, Mitch Album is an inspiration around the world. Album is the author of numerous books of fiction and nonfiction, which have collectively sold more than 40 million copies in 48 languages worldwide. He's written eight number one New York Times bestsellers, including Tuesdays with Maury, the best-selling memoir of all time, which topped the list for four straight years and celebrated its 25th anniversary on 2022. He's also written award winning TV films, stage plays, screenplays, a nationally syndicated newspaper column, and a musical. He appeared for more than 20 years on ESPN and was a fixture on the Sports Reporters. Through his work at the Detroit Free Press, he was inducted into both the National Sports Media Association and Michigan Sports Hall of Fame and was the recipient of the Red Smith Award for Lifetime Achievement. So, with that introduction, I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Mitch Album, and he's joining us to discuss his new novel, The Little Liar, which is now available in bookstores everywhere. Mitch, welcome, and thank you for joining me on New World.
5: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
4: How did you get into writing?
5: Accidentally. I was a musician, and that's all I ever really wanted to be. Never wrote anything while I was in high school or college. I just wanted to work in the music business. And I did that for a few years in New York. Wasn't really getting anywhere and worked at nights mostly. And so during the day, I had time free. And I was in a supermarket one day and picked up one of those giveaway newspapers that they have there. And They had a little thing in the bottom right corner that said we could use some help with our newspaper if you have time. And since I had some time, I went down there and I think it was the youngest person in the office by about 70 years. And they gave me an assignment that night and I'd never written anything. And they gave me an assignment to cover a parking meters hearing. And all I knew about journalism was all the president's men, which I had seen like a lot of other people in the movies, And so I got myself a pad and a pen and I went there and asked a lot of direct questions. And then I guess I had just read a lot of newspapers in my life. And I knew that you start with that sort of general paragraph that sums it up and then you have a quote and then you expand it. So I wrote the story. And the next week when I went back to the supermarket, I picked up the little paper that they gave out and there was my story on the bottom of the front page. And had my name on it, and I got that little tingle in my stomach, and I've been a writer ever since.
4: How did your family react to your name in print?
5: Well, my father always wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor, and so he hated the idea that I was going to be a musician. And he tolerated it because he loved me, and he was a good man and a good father. And then after a few years, I said to him, you know, I think I'm going to get out of the music business. And I could see he was trying to hide the smile on his face, And he was, well, all right, if you feel that that's the right thing, you know, what are you thinking of going into? And I said, writing. And he said, writing? That's the fire to the frying pan. And so he wasn't too crazy about it for the first few years. But eventually he came around. And I think eventually by the time I was writing a newspaper column and then wrote a book, he thought, ah, maybe he'll be able to make something of himself.
4: I have to ask you, before we leave your. famed musical career. You played in the Lucky Tiger Grease Stick Band. Yeah. Do you want to tell us all a little bit about, I think this was in high school, wasn't it?
5: In high school, it was a, like a Sha Na band. We greased our hair back and we sang the f- songs of the 1950s and the early 60s and doo-wop music, you know, and it was a lot of fun. We played all around high schools and bands and concerts. And I never had to worry about, dancing in high school because I was always playing in the band, you know, which and it was an easier way to meet girls than asking them to dance. And many years later, when I got out of music, just to put full circle on it, I joined a band of writers with Stephen King and Dave Barry and Amy Tan and Ridley Pearson, Scott Turow, James McBride. It's kind of a who's who of a lot of writers. And we've been together now for 25 years. And honestly, Newt, This band is worse than my high school band.
4: (laughs) So. (laughs) So it performs below the standard of the Lucky Tiger Grease Stick Band.
5: Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes.
4: That's hysterical. Now, I have to say one of the things I was intrigued by, you actually ended up in Crete playing in a taverna. And as it says, singing... Elvis Presley and Ray Charles songs. What was that like? I would think it must be pretty wild.
5: Well, I ended up there quite by accident. You know, I was over in Europe after college doing the you know, backpacking thing before I came back to New York to try my life as a musician. And I ended up in Athens. I answered an ad for a piano player wanted on Resort Island and didn't even know what it was. And they gave me a plane ticket and flew me over to Crete And I walked into the place and the guy said to me, are you the piano player? I said, yeah. He said, sit down, start playing. I didn't have any music. I didn't have anything. And I just sat down at this piano and started playing piano, which I could do. And then after he listened to me for a little while, he took me down to Verna, the nightclub to negotiate the deal. And while we were there, he said, can you sing? And I said, well, yeah, I I could sing. And he said, well, go sing with the band. And I said, I can't sing Greek music. He said, just go sing with the band or I'm not going to give you the job. And so I went to the guy at the band and whispered in his ear. I said, Do you know any American rock and roll music? And he said, Elvis Presley. And I said, Yeah, okay, Elvis Presley. He says, Blue suede shoes. I said, Okay, I can do blue suede shoes. And, you know, the lights were off. And, you know, that song kind of starts cold, you know, without any music. So it was like one, two, three. And then the lights go up. And I go, One for the money, two for the show, like that. And everybody's mouth just dropped open. For about the next three minutes, I became Elvis Presley and I was kind of swinging around the whole club and dancing and everything. And by the time I finished, I got a standing ovation and the nightclub owner said, I'm hiring you as my singer and my piano player. And I got the job and I was there for about seven months. And if I was smart, I would have just stayed there the rest of my life. But like a fool, I wanted to get back to New York so I could starve.
4: What was life in Creek like?
5: Oh, it was magical. First of all, back then. Crete wasn't developed like it is now. And I was near this fishing village called Agios Nikolaos. And I used to be able to ride a bicycle into town or run into town. And then I just stand on the corner by the fishing area there where everybody was in their boats. And they knew me because, you know, how many guys on the island of Crete in that corner of it sing Elvis Presley music? And so they would pull up in cars and say, oh, hello, Elvis, get in the car. Come on, I'll give you a ride, you know. And so I was like the king of the island, you know, everybody knew me. And The food was fantastic. The water was, you know, turquoise blue and the people could not have been nicer. And many years later, you know, this new book I wrote, The Little Iris, set in Greece. And part of the reason is because I lived there when I was younger and I knew a lot about it and wanted to set a story there.
4: You really had quite an eclectic early part of your life.
5: I did. And then I ended up a sports writer, which has nothing to do with any of it. Did you love sports? No, not particularly. When I got into journalism after I worked at that volunteer paper that they gave out in supermarkets, that helped me get into Columbia Journalism School in New York City. And while I was there, I needed to pay my tuition. I was working as a piano player at night, you know, trying to pay my tuition and they had a job at the Sport Magazine. And so I went over there and I, you know, started writing. And then when I graduated, I wanted to get into magazine writing. You know, I wanted to be like Tom Wolfe. I wanted to write long Big magazine pieces, but all my clips were sports clips. And so every time I would apply for a job, they would end up giving them over to the sports editor and saying, Hey, this guy writes sports. And so eventually I ended up getting offered a job as a sports writer in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I thought, Well, I need the job, I'll take it. And I've been in sports ever since. And I found that I could actually write a lot of human stories, a lot of stories about pathos and emotion and things in the sports world. Because it's a great backdrop, you know. You've got victory and defeat, and you know people working their whole lives for ten seconds, and it turned out to be a great training field for the kind of writing I would end up doing later.
4: While you were doing that, as I understand it, you encountered Maury Schwartz, who was a former college professor who was dying of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. What led you to decide to write? Tuesdays
5: with Maury? You know, it wasn't really a book thing, to be honest with you. Maury was an old college professor of mine who I was very close with in college. I mean, he wasn't just a guy I took a class with. I took every class he offered. I majored in sociology because of him. We were kind of like an uncle and a nephew, really. You know, we sat around campus and ate together. I went to his home. And then when I graduated, you know, I promised I would stay in touch. And then I didn't, you know, it became very. Self-absorbed and very ambitious, and working my way up the sports writing ladder, and I just sort of forgot about him. Shame on me! And then 16 years later, I saw him accidentally on Nightline with Ted Koppel talking about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. That's the only way I found out that he was even sick, and so I was very embarrassed by that. And I called him up, and figuring I would just make one call to ease my conscience, and one call led to a visit. I figured one visit would ease my conscience and the first visit was so unbelievable you know he was so calm about dying and he was so content with how he had lived his life that when i flew home that night i realized like he was 78 and dying and i was 37 and perfectly healthy and he seemed more content with his life than i was so i began to go back the next tuesday the next tuesday next tuesday and all the tuesdays he had left in his life to try to find out what he knew about life that i didn't and the book only came about as an accident because He told me one time that the thing he feared the most wasn't a disease and wasn't anything physical. It was that he was going to die and leave his family all this debt because he was in debt for all his medical bills for dying for two years. And so he said, I'm going to die twice. First time I die and then on the other side of the grave when I realize my family is going to have to sell their house and I'm going to be the cause of it. And so I only got the idea then to maybe write a book to help him pay his medical bills. And I privately went around to all these different publishers in New York trying to find somebody who was interested in it. And I said, I just need enough money to pay his bills. I think it's a really interesting story. An old man talking to a young man about what's important in life right before he dies. And everybody said no. Everybody. Boring. You're a sports writer. It's depressing. Nobody's going to want to read it. And I honestly, I would have given up Newt if it was for me because I had so many no's. But because it was for him, you know, I kept pushing and pushing until I found one publisher who was willing to publish it. And just a few weeks before Maury died, they agreed to do it. And I was able to go to Maury and tell him and give him the money to pay his medical bills. And I said, here, you don't have to die twice. You know, once is enough. For me, I always said that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury because I'd finally learned To do one nice thing, you know, for this man who had done so many nice things for me before that. But of course, then after he passed away, I wrote the book very simply. I was figuring to go back to my sports writing career, and they printed 20,000 copies of it total. I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life, you know, giving them out to people when they drove. Hey, you want a book? You know, come by for Christmas and empty out my trunk. And it just caught on in some way. And got bigger and bigger and bigger, but it was totally an accident. But
4: that book sort of made you.
5: Oh, yeah. Well, not only made me, it turned my life around. I mean, I, you know, I was a ambitious, 100-hour-a-week, you know, sports writer. And from that point forward, instead of people coming up to me and saying, hey, who's going to win the Super Bowl, they would come up and say, my mother died of cancer. And the last thing we did was read Tuesdays with Maury together. Can I talk to you about it? You know, And your reaction is quite different than who's going to win the Super Bowl. And you start to realize the pain that people walk around with every day in every airport and every place you're meeting them. Someone's missing somebody, mourning for somebody, grieving for somebody, worried about somebody. And I heard so many of these stories and My world began to revolve around that kind of thing, and I never wrote a sports book again. Everything I've written since has really kind of been a derivative, even fictionally, of the lessons I learned in Tuesdays with
4: Maury. Even though that was a huge success, it took you six years to write your next book.
5: Well, I was kind of frozen because all the people who didn't want Tuesdays with Maury, now all they wanted was Wednesdays with Maury, you know? (laughs) And chicken soup with Maury and Venus and Mars and Maury and you know, stuff like that. And I said, Oh no, I'm not gonna do that. You know, I don't wanna turn it into a franchise and you know, everything that happened I wrote. There's nothing else to say about that book. And well come up with something. And so finally I said, Well, I think maybe I'll try a novel. And they said, oh, no, that's a stupid idea. That's a terrible idea. No, no, no. You know, everybody who writes nonfiction thinks they can write a novel and don't do it. I said, well, but yeah, but you said the same thing about Tuesdays with Morrie. You said that was a stupid idea, too. So I think fortunately, because I had been rejected once before, I wasn't afraid to go up against the rejection the second time. And I knew in my heart that I would never find a subject that would please Tuesdays with Maury fans if it was a nonfiction subject. They would all say, well, whoever this guy is, isn't as interesting as Maury. So I just went the other way and wrote a novel about a man who dies and goes to heaven and meets five people from his life. And it was called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And Knockwood it became a really, really successful book. And my career as a fiction writer was created.
4: I not written a fair number of books myself to launch... Two consecutive New York Times bestsellers, one in fiction, one in nonfiction. That's really pretty remarkable.
5: Yeah, I think if I had thought about it, I probably would have been too scared to do it. But you know what they say about when you're younger and taking chances, you're not afraid of what you might lose. And so I thought, well, what do I got to lose? And it worked out.
7: Rappaport's reality—the reality, the reality a little of us—we're figuring little bit.
6: <laughs> out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. It, it, would Ooh, a, it would have been the been podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn.
7: Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport,
6: and me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Christmas is coming, and it's never too early to think about what would make the perfect gift for your children or grandchildren. This Christmas, I recommend you order Ellis the Elephant seven-book series and plush toy from our Gingrich 360 store. Ellis the Elephant teaches children lessons of America's founding and what makes our country exceptional. It's the perfect Christmas gift for little patriots. Order your seven-book series and plush toy today by going to Gingrich360.com slash store. That's Gingrich360.com slash store. So then you came back with For One More Day, which actually debuted at number one on the New York Times list and spent nine months on the list. What triggered that? Why did you write One More Day?
5: I used to talk to my mother periodically when I was writing in the mornings. You know, I'd pick up the phone if I had a little break and would just dial her number. And, you know, my mom, we had a great relationship and she was really encouraging to me. You know, she was the opposite of what my dad you know, when my dad said, don't be a writer, don't be a writer. My mother said, you do whatever you want to do. If it's going to make you happy, do it. I thought to myself one day, I'm not going to be able to, you know, make this call. Like what, what it will be like if she's not here? And I said, I know what I'm going to feel. I'm going to say like, oh no, just give me one more day back and I'll say everything that I should have said. And so I wrote a book about a guy who loses his mother and his life kind of goes downhill, becomes alcoholic and you know, kind of goes back to his hometown, little hometown where he grew up to kill himself. And he fails. And when the sun comes up, he goes back to his old abandoned house, having failed even at killing himself, and walks into the house and discovers his mother's living in it as if nothing ever happened, as if she never died. And she's making him breakfast. And he gets this full day, one full day back on earth with her. And he's able to sort of say all the things that he didn't and kind of figure out how his life went wrong. And she sort of helps him. And it ended up being, ironically, the last book that my mother read because she suffered a stroke right after that and couldn't read or talk anymore after it. So I was glad that I dedicated it to her and the timing of it worked out to be the right thing.
4: What's fascinating about your career is in addition to writing both fiction and nonfiction, you've had four of your books turned into movies.
5: Yeah, that's an interesting experience, especially when you're one of the characters. Oprah Winfrey made a movie out of Tuesdays with Maury, and she invited me to come to the set, and I said, okay, and I went there one day, and they were filming a scene, and I looked at it, and it was like they had recreated Maury's office, and there was Jack Lemon playing Maury and Hank Azaria was playing me. And I got there just as they were about to film the scene. And they said, you know, all right, everybody quiet, you know, action. And, and I heard Jack Lemon saying, well, Mitch, you know, this is what happens when you die. Mitch, and he had all these lines that were from the book. And it was surreal because, you know, it was like watching my own life right in front of me, you know, with two actors who I knew very well, all of a sudden they were using our names and one of them looked a lot like Maury and, you know, they made Jack Lemmon up to look like Maury. And, and I never went back to the set, you know, like it was kind of spooky, but they did a great job. And Jack Lemmon ended up winning the Emmy for that and Hank's area and the movie and all that. And, and I remember Jack Lemmon, when he got nominated for the Emmy, I called him up and I said, congratulations, you know, I think you're going to win because you did a great job. And he said, thank you, thank you. And I teased him and I said, just remember, if you win, don't forget the writer, because they always forget the writer. You know, they thank their dog catcher and they thank the woman next door or whatever. But they don't. And he said, OK, OK, OK. And so, of course, he ends up winning. And when he went up to make his acceptance speech, the first thing he said was, you know, I spoke to Mitch Albom months ago about this and he said, don't forget the writer. So, I'm going to say it thanks to him, you know, uh, this we wouldn't have had any of this if not for him. So it was very, very, very sweet. You know, that was my first experience in your movies, your books becoming movies. And then they made one out of the five people you meet in heaven, which I wrote. And that was a surreal experience because these things that are in your imagination, like I had, there was an amusement park was the backdrop of the book. And I created the whole amusement park from my imagination. And then you walk onto this set that they build. And it looks just like your imagination made it look, only they created it from scratch. You know, the name of the pier, the rides, all the rest of it, which are things I made up and it's right in front of you. So, as I say, it's sort of a surreal thing to see something come to life in a movie.
4: Was it a challenge to take fiction that you had written and then turn it into a script for a shooting script?
5: It is. You have to lose most of it. People don't realize, you know, how deep a book is. People are always saying the movie wasn't like the book. And I always say, if you made the movie exactly like the book, like each scene that you have in the book was actually a scene in the movie and the dialogue in the book was a dialogue, the movie would be 150 hours long. So most of what you do is just cut and you cut and you cut and you cut and you cut and then you really have to get down to the essence of what the book was about. And I think in some cases, other people can do that better than you can. I wrote three of my movies. We have some other ones that are being done now and I'm just as comfortable with somebody else. Writing it because it's really kind of a different thing.
4: Yeah, I'm currently watching a series called The Offer, which is the making of The Godfather. And Pujo, who'd written this extraordinary book, has the same problem because they hire him to write the movie script. He's never written a movie script, and he doesn't know how to do it. And it's fascinating to watch have that whole sense of the complexity of, as one of the guys said, "This is about a series of snapshots." You know, you've got to go through the book and figure out the right snapshots. Because that's all you got time for.
5: I'll tell you something that John Voight played Eddie in the Tuesdays with Maury. And he taught me a great lesson once like that. I had written a scene very much like the scene in the book where he confronts his father in heaven and his father isn't talking to him. And he says something to him, you know, like, talk to me, Dad. You know, come on, Dad, talk to me. You know, forgive me, Dad. And John Voight says to me, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He says, why do you have me saying this three times? I said, because, you know, like I did in the book, it's really important. He says, let me say it once and I'll do the rest on my face. And I thought, ah, that's the difference between movies.
4: That's really good. That is a great line, which I will keep. Now, beyond all of this, which is really quite amazing, you also became a playwright, which has its own kind of discipline and rules and things that are different than either a movie or a book.
5: Yeah, much different. Playwrights, that's where you want to go if you want to feel important because the writer is king in the stage world. The writer is just an accessory in the movie world. You're lucky if you get invited to the screening, you know. But in the play world, the playwright's words are, you know, first of all, it's all about dialogue. And I had great opportunity to write the play of Tuesdays with Maury with Jeffrey Hatcher. I didn't know anything about writing plays at that point, but I had learned from him and from some other good playwrights They said that Herb Gardner, the wonderful playwright of A Thousand Clowns and other people like that, he took me in and kind of became a mentor. And he said to me, all of theater is about somebody wants something from somebody else. Just synthesize it down to somebody wants something from somebody else. And that's the essence of every great play and everything. And I've always kept that in mind when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury with Jeffrey Hatcher. And then I wrote a number of plays afterwards as a result of it. And it's a very dialogue Heavy thing. You know, nobody cares. You don't write what something smells like or what the wall looks like or anything like that. It's just people talking. And that's its own kind of discipline and its own set of rules.
4: Just further expand your amazing range of talent. You're also a songwriter and lyricist.
5: Well, that goes back to my music days. I wasn't very successful when I was trying to be a musician. But when you don't try and you get into some other field, Suddenly you find out like musicians like hanging out with writers. And you know, I ended up befriending a lot of guys through our terrible band that I have told you about, the Rock Bottom Remainers, including Warren Zevon, the guy who did Werewolves of London and all the rest of it. And he ended up asking me to write him a song one time, which I did, and he recorded it. I've ended up having songs in movies that I've done. And I've had much more success as a musician once I decided not to be one than I had when I was trying to be one.
4: Your newest book is very, very timely in that The Little Liar is the first one you've done set during the Holocaust. Why did you decide to write about the Holocaust?
5: Well, I didn't really decide to write about the Holocaust. I wanted to write about truth. And the book is narrated by the voice of truth. It begins with, you know, you can trust the story you're about to hear. You can trust it because I'm the only thing in this world you can trust. I am truth. And it tells the story of a little 11-year-old boy living in Greece who's never told a lie in his life and a little girl in his village who loves him. And when the Nazis invade, they find out about his honesty and they decide to use it as a weapon. And they trick him into standing on the railroad tracks and telling the people who get into the trains that they're going to someplace good and new, they're gonna have jobs and homes and everything's gonna be fine. And thinking that he's telling the truth, and that if he does this to let him go back to his family, he does this for a couple of weeks until on the very last train, he sees his family and this little girl that he loves shoved into the boxcar. And he finds out that these trains are actually going to Auschwitz and the concentration camps. And he realizes that the first lie he's ever told in his life is going to be the worst lie he's ever going to tell in his life. And the book follows him and the girl that he loves and his family and even the Nazi who tricked him for the next 40 years and shows the ramifications of that one lie on all their lives, how it changed him, the girl, the family, the Nazi. And it's kind of a parable about truth and forgiveness because he spends the rest of his life trying to be forgiven for what he was tricked into doing and his family tries to find him and so does the girl to forgive him. But their lives have so changed that you know it takes decades for them to find each other again. I didn't really set out to write something about the Holocaust or even about events of today. But it turns out that it's pertinent
4: to both. You put the book in Greece. Why did you pick Greece?
5: Well, as I told you, I lived there for a period of time as a nightclub singer and a piano player. And so I knew more about Greece probably than the average guy who lives in Detroit does, which is where I live. And a lot of people don't realize that the Nazis even invaded Greece, that the Holocaust came there, and they certainly don't realize that Thessalonica, which is a city where I set the book, was actually the largest majority Jewish population of any city in Europe. Everybody thinks it would be in Poland or in France or something. Not true. Thessalonica had close to like 37 percent was Jewish before the war and within three years was wiped out. Just totally eliminated. And I thought if I can in 2023 tell a story about the Holocaust that people didn't know, it only goes to show you how vast and awful that event was, and that there's still things that we need to be hearing about, even at a time when there's very few people left alive to be able to share those stories.
4: It's amazing. And I think the way in which you have the whole story narrated by truth itself. It really does in some ways take you back to Tuesdays with Maury and the whole notion of seeking a larger meaning and seeking something like truth and love, which transcends normal human behavior.
5: Well, I always remember that Maury said to me before he died that one of the things he regretted the most in his life was an argument that he had with a friend of his that crumbled their friendship. And he started to cry when he told it to me. And he said, you know. I found out a couple months ago that he died of cancer and I never had a chance to make it up to him. And, and he started to weep and just weep. He said, why did I let that nothing conversation separate us? All I wish is that I could you know, hold his hand and tell him what a great friend he was, but I never will. And, and he looked me kind of square on. And he said, Mitch, if there's anybody you care about in your life who you're fighting with or feuding with, let it go. Just let it go. He said, forgive everybody, everything and then forgive yourself. Because when you get to the end of your life, you're going to wish that you had done that. And I took that very seriously. And I've tried to live my life that way, never holding grudges and anybody that I care about. If I get into something, I resolve it because you never know when you don't get the chance the next day they're gone. And so in A Little Liar, you know, forgiveness becomes a big part of the theme. And what is truth? And what is forgiveness if not sort of seeking the truth of what happened and what went wrong? So, in some ways, the little liar poses the question of you know, what's the biggest lie you ever told? And what would you do to be forgiven for that lie?
4: In Alcoholics Anonymous, seeking reconciliation and forgiveness for the things you've done to hurt others is a very significant part of getting your act together and being able to live without addiction. So, in that sense, in The Little Liar, you've touched on a central core of human beings. What's also fascinating is you have a podcast called The Tuesday People, and you've been doing it for four years. How often do you do it and what's your focus?
5: So we do it every week on Tuesdays. The reason I decided to do it was as we were getting close to the 25th anniversary of Tuesdays with Maury, somebody asked me, well, is there something that you can do differently, you know, write something for the book or whatever? And I thought about it. I said, you know, Tuesdays with Maury is pretty well known. There's not a whole lot more that I can, you know, say about it. But then I realized that I had all these tapes, from my conversations with Maury that I had never really shared with anybody. And so I thought about the audio medium and I thought, well, why don't I do a podcast where every week I share some of our conversations and we review those lessons. But as seen through the lens, now I'm a lot closer to Maury's age than I am to mine back then. And I'm sort of you know taking his role as the teacher now but using his words and so we're able to play all these different clips because we recorded all of our conversations and it's been very sweet for me to listen to that you know because i'm listening to myself from 25 26 years ago and my voice still sounds similar younger a little higher like up here but the way i converse and the way that maury teases me and i tease there's a lot of laughing and there's a lot of teasing you know, along with the life lessons, there's a lot of crying that you hear Maury do. And I was just going to do it for like six months, but it just keeps going because there's so many tapes.
4: So people can go to where they get podcast put in the Tuesday people.
5: Yeah. Tuesday people.
4: That's great. So one last thing, which is in the middle of all your creativity, you also are very deeply committed to helping other people, both in Detroit and in Haiti. Could you chat a little bit about what you do and why you do it?
5: Sure. Well, a lot of this also stems back to Tuesdays with Maury. When Maury said to me one time, what do you do for charity? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, what do you do for people in your community? I said, I write checks. And he said, well, anybody can write a check. You've been given a voice and you need to use your voice for something more than just aggrandizing yourself. I never forget that because who uses the word aggrandize in a sentence except Maury. And so I started my first charity that year, which was a scholarship fund for kids to study the arts in Detroit. And then I began to get a little bit more deeply involved, more deeply involved. And in 2006, they had the Super Bowl here in Detroit. And I read a story about a Super Bowl party for homeless people which I couldn't understand what the heck that was. So I looked into it and it turned out it was a euphemism for getting all the homeless people off the streets in Detroit and putting them into this big shelter so that they wouldn't bother the customers. And then on Monday morning, right after the Super Bowl, they're going to kick them out back out into the street. And I thought this is just really cruel. And so I went down to a homeless shelter and spent the night there to write a story about what it was like to really need a shelter and how why you can't give that to people and then just take it away from them. And while I was in line at the shelter for the meal, this guy in front of me looks, turns around and looks me up and down. He says, aren't you Mitch Album?" I said, yeah. And then he looked me up and down again. He said, so what happened to you? And, you know, first I laughed and he was dead serious. Then I realized, well, yeah, I guess, you know, he probably never expected to be on this line either. So I was very taken with that, you know, like it was one of those moments that kind of stayed with me and I wrote a column about it. And I asked people to help give money to just keep the homeless in that shelter at least until April when it warmed up. So I was seeking sixty thousand dollars. And within a week I had three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars just from people sending in five and ten and twenty dollar donations. And so I had to do something with it. And so I looked into it and I formed this charity called Say Detroit, super all year Detroit instead of Super One Weekend. And it's grown from that in 2006 to it's now a multi-million dollar operation that handles 10 different operations, all of which we've created here. Everything from infants to five days old up to senior citizens. We opened the first medical clinic for homeless children in America. It was here in Detroit. We operate that. We operate a rec center after school for 300 kids that has a digital learning center, a recording studio, football fields in the most dangerous neighborhood in Detroit. We even have a bicycle factory where we create jobs refurbishing or building bicycles that we then give out to people in Detroit because transportation here is such a challenge. So people can't get to work or can't get to school. And so we provide free bicycles. So I've done all that and that's grown into something quite big. And I take my role in my hometown here of Detroit very seriously. And I think I've been blessed. A lot of people most common question is, why do you stay in Detroit? Why do you stay in Detroit? I can't believe you live in Detroit. You know, why are you still there? I love it here. And I'm very proud of being from here. That's my involvement in Detroit. And in Haiti, I operate an orphanage in Haiti that I've been operating since 2010. And I'm there every month of my life for about seven to nine days of every month I spend there running the orphanage. And we have currently 65 children. We always have about 60, 65 children. And as they graduate, they get college scholarships. I've got 12 of them right now in university here in Michigan and one in medical school. Haiti is just a remarkable and sad place on many levels. It's the second poorest country on earth. It's the poorest here in the Western Hemisphere. It is lawless right now and without government. We have to take armored cars just to get to the orphanage from the airport. And have bodyguards with us?
4: This is a topic I'm very fascinated by. We have been in Haiti off and on since nineteen twenty-three. And we haven't been able to fix it. It's a human tragedy. And it has predatory behaviors that makes life miserable for everybody who's not predatory. The military's intervened several times, nothing gets improved. What's your gut instinct? And since you have a personal knowledge of the country, what has to be done? so that Haitians can have a decent life?
5: Well, first of all, they have to make education available. And it may sound simple, but you have to pay to go to school in Haiti. And that's a device that the rich use to keep the poor down. You can't raise up an educated class of people if nobody can afford to go to school. And every time a politician comes along promising to make school free, somebody in power undermines them and makes sure it doesn't happen. So right from the very beginning... They have to make sure that people get educated, and then you have to somehow find a way to get a leader there that isn't corrupt or corrupted by the previous leaders, because corruption is absolutely endemic to Haitian government. The people are remarkable. They're resilient. The kids are amazing. We have children who have been abandoned, left under trees to die, you know, left in holes in the ground and muddy fields, no birth certificates, no record of who they are we have to give them names and make up birthdays and yet they have a joy for living and a resilience and a faith that is unparalleled and i wish i could explain to people why it's important to help out in haiti and you know Newt, because you're an educated man in government we ran haiti for 15 years we wrote their constitution we kept their money in our banks We have a history there. We have an obligation there. It's not just some little island off the Florida coast, so to speak. And it's only 700 miles away from us. And yet the way people live, the life expectancy there is like 20 years less than here just because of the conditions. So I wish that our leaders were more dedicated to doing something there. Unfortunately, you know, it's not a lot of political benefit to helping Haiti. Of course, if China suddenly decided to come in there or Russia or whatever, we'd be there in a hurry. Witness what happened just recently with all these gangs. Newt, we have five people living with us at our orphanage who have to live with us because they had gangs walk into their homes with guns and say, get out now. No clothes, no anything. Get out. This is our house now. And they have no place to go. So they live with us. The country lives under that kind of fear and control of these gangs.
4: I think it's one of the great tragedies of our time and it ought to be fixable but to fix it you would have to defeat evil and we're not very good right now at doing that
5: no i wish there was a formula that i knew how to do that so i always say i can't fix haiti but i can fix a tiny little corner of it and that's why i'm there and i will be for the rest of my life
4: if enough people take on the desire to be helpful that you have both in Detroit and Haiti, collectively will eventually produce a better planet with better living conditions. Mitch, this has been fascinating. You've had a remarkable life that has sort of unfolded before you. I can kind of sense that you kept drifting forward and the next thing would open up and then the next thing. So I really want to thank you for joining me. I want to remind our listeners that your new novel, The Little Liar, is available on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere. Would make a great holiday gift. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. You can read more about Mitch's work on his website at mitchalbum.com. And I want to further say thank you for the work you've done both for the people of Michigan and the people of Haiti with all your philanthropic work. And thank you for what's been, I think, an amazing conversation. Well, thanks.
5: I've really enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate it. Happy holidays to everybody in your audience.
4: Thank you to my guest, Mitch Album. You can learn more about his new book, The Little Liar, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars, and give us a review, so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com/newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt World.